0: Let's dive deeper into evaluation of CAR T-cell toxicities. I've highlighted cytokine release syndrome, neurologic toxicity, which we now call immune effector cell associated neurologic syndrome, or ICANS. We also see some prolonged cytopenias with about a third of patients having ongoing grade three or four cytopenias one month after CAR T-cell treatment. Then we see on-target B-cell aplasia and hypogammaglobulinemia a result of depleting CD19-positive B cells. The rates of toxicity of, of, of AxiCell, tysocell, and lysacell in the third line or later setting are highlighted here. I showed earlier that AxiCell has been associated with the highest rate of cytokine-release syndrome. Patients with AxiCell at a 93% rate of cytokine-release syndrome, which was severe in 13%. Compare that to LysiCabdogene Marilucil, which used the same CRS grading scale and in that study, the CRS rate was only 42% with a, with a severe CRS rate of only 2%. So clearly lower any grade and severe CRS favoring cell and cell over cell. The likely explanation for that is primarily the co-stimulation domain. Whereas the CD28 co-stimulation domain and cell leads to a much more rapid and earlier peak expansion and then earlier um, um, drop-off in persistence whereas Lysacel and Tysacel use 4,1BB, which leads to a a slower um, uh, but uh, ultimately prolonged persistence of CAR T cell therapy and a more blunted onset of CRS and neurologic toxicities. Neurologic toxicities were also seen in the majority of patients treated with Axicel, with two thirds of patients having any grade of neurologic toxicities and severe in 28%. This is much lower with Tysacel and Lysacel which occurred at any grade neurologic toxicities at 21 and 30% respectively, with severe neurotoxicity in only 12 and 10% of patients treated with Tisacel and Lysocell, respectively. This is reflected in the lower use of rescue medications, tocilizumab and corticosteroids, which are required in a significant proportion of patients treated with Axicel, but lower rates of use with Tizocell and Lysocel. Importantly, cytokine release syndrome and neurologic toxicities are identifiable and reversible in the vast majority of patients receiving any three of these CAR T-cell products. There are well-defined algorithms for the management of cytokine release syndrome. CRS is graded as shown here, beginning with isolated fever, uh, which is usually treated with just supportive care alone, uh, whereas persistent or or, um, Uh, Prolonged grade one CRS can be treated with tocilizumab, uh, as well as, of course, supportive care. Grade two CRS uh, includes some hypotension, but not uh, hypotension requiring uh, anything more than IV fluid boluses. This is where we typically incorporate tocilizumab um, with or without uh, corticosteroids. Grade three CRS uh, means vasopressor requiring... Uh, uh, cytokine release syndrome and hypotension. These patients are usually moved to an intensive care unit. These patients always receive a combination of tocilizumab and corticosteroids, as well as supportive care. Grade four, which is hypotension requiring multiple vasopressors. Of course, these patients are uh, in the ICU and receive tocilizumab as well as high-dose dexamethasone. There is some limited data for patients who have refractory CRS despite tocilizumab and dexamethasone, of giving an alternate uh, IL-6 antagonist siltuximab or the drug anakinra. Neurologic toxicities uh, begin uh, with grade one neurotoxicity being mild confusion, agitation, word finding difficulties. We typically involve neurology, think about other causes for um, for altered mental status, uh, but treat with supportive care. Uh, Grade two neurologic toxicity with this is where Uh, Patients are starting to have uh, difficulty with their uh, activities uh, of daily living. Uh, We would incorporate dexamethasone. Corticosteroids are the key treatment for uh, mitigating uh, neurologic toxicities. We would include tocilizumab for these patients only if they have concurrent cytokine release syndrome, but tocilizumab is otherwise not a treatment for isolated neurologic toxicities. Once patients are, have severe neurologic toxicities, these patients are typically transferred to an intensive care unit and are given high doses of corticosteroids. And of course, uh, uh, grade four, uh, which might include uh, rare patients with uh, increased intracranial pressure and cerebral edema. These patients are treated with high-dose methylprednisolone uh, and uh, may have status epilepticus requiring um, uh, treatment with anti-epileptic drugs. I will note that any patient, even with grade one neurologic toxicities, we typically start these patients on um, uh, Keppra uh, or an alternate antiepileptic drug as prophylaxis with a goal that these patients never develop seizure activity. And uh, indeed, the majority of patients will not develop um, uh, epileptiform activity. I'll note some of the toxicities associated with other novel drugs I talked about. Polituzumab-vidotin, the anti-CD79B drug. Uh, conjugate, has expected toxicities associated with the MMAE, or monomethyl E, the same uh, toxic payload associated with the antibody drug conjugate, brentuximab, in Hodgkin lymphoma, and ALCL. The primary toxicity of this drug is peripheral neuropathy, and so it's important to dose-reduce this drug for any patient who's developing anything more uh, than mildly um, uh, limiting peripheral neuropathy. Anybody with functionally limiting Peripheral neuropathy requires a dose reduction of polituzinab. This drug, particularly when combined with bendamustine, can also induce myelosuppression uh, and uh, infections, as well as GI uh, toxicities. Any patient receiving bendamustine-based therapy should also receive pneumocystis prophylaxis and HSV prophylaxis, though that isn't required for a patient receiving polituzumab without bendamustine. I mentioned with longcast-tuximab, the anti-CD19-PBD antibody drug conjugate, that unique toxicity associated with fluid retention and edema that requires the dexamethasone uh, pretreatment starting the day before, day of, and then day after uh, each loncatuximab treatment, as well as the increase in LFTs and occasional rashes. Cellanexor, the XPO1 inhibitor I mentioned, this very significant um, GI toxicities that can have really quite significant nausea and diarrhea this requires a lot of supportive care, including olanzapine uh, for these patients. These patients all have a fi- have um, asthenia, loss of appetite, uh, weight loss, and myelosuppression, uh, and again, requires significant dose reductions sometimes in order for patients to tolerate this oral agent. Let's think through a case uh, and how we might uh, manage uh, a, a case of uh, relapse refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. This case is a 72-year-old woman with type 2 diabetes and hypertension who's diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Her ECOG performance status is one, her creatinine is 1.7, and her staging shows stage three, stage three non-germinal center subtype of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma uh, with expression of MYC and BCL2, but without translocations of MYC, BCL2, or BCL6, so this is not a double hit lymphoma. This patient is appropriately treated with r and achieves a complete response, but unfortunately relapses eight months later. This patient now has disease involving the lymph nodes, spleen, and liver, uh, and this patient uh, is uh, has an early relapse of DLBCL. This patient is considered non-transplant eligible and is. Uh, receives uh, R-Gemox as a, sec- a second-line therapy without response, and is now under consideration uh, for treatment in the third-line setting. Now, this is an interesting case with rapidly evolving care. I would have said that at the time of early relapse in less than one year after RCHOP, I would consider this patient a candidate for CAR T-cells in the uh, second-line setting, ideally with lysocaptogen marilusol, given the patient's age and comorbidities, uh, that uh, product would likely be better tolerated than AxiCell. But as of today, AxiCell is the the FDA approved product uh, with LizaCell approval expected uh, in the future. And so I would still consider this patient a a candidate for AxiCell with very close attention to supportive care in the second line setting. Now this patient received RGEMOX in the second line setting and is now progressing. I would now consider this a patient uh, for a third line CAR T cells. And I'd say among the available products, I'd choose Lysocell or Tysocell for this patient, again, given the lower risk of cytokine release syndrome and neurologic toxicities. If this patient was not, uh, did not have access to either Lysocell or Tysocell, or relapsed after Lysocell or Tysocell, I would consider alternate options, including uh, tafacitimab lenalidomide. Uh, could be a very good option for this patient, or polituzumab with rituximab, with or without inclusion of bendamustine. So I'll summarize by saying that diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is a clinically and biologically heterogeneous disease, but is treated with curative intent in the vast majority of patients. We have a rapidly evolving landscape in the upfront and relapse refractory setting. CAR T-cells have emerged now as the treatment of choice in third line or later DLBCL with AxiCell, cell and tisys-cell all available in that setting, and is now moving into the second line setting for primary refractory and early relapsing patients with both AxiCell and liza-cell showing superiority over standard of care in transplant-eligible early relapse or primary refractory DLBCL. Second-line therapy is further uh, personalized to the patient. And in a patient who's relapsing late uh, or is non-transplant eligible, those patients can still be considered for chemotherapy, whether or without auto-transplant for a late relapse transplant eligible patient, whereas non-transplant eligible patients uh, in the uh, second-line setting who are not CAR T-cell candidates can be considered for tafasitamab lenalidomide or polatuzumab br. In the third-line uh, setting in patients who've received CAR T-cells, have relapsed after CAR T-cells, or are non-CAR T-cell candidates. Again, tafacitimab lenalidomide and polituzumab, BR remain options, as does the uh, very appealing activity of lancastuximab tesserine, which was studied in the LOTUS2 trial. Cellanexor is also uh, an option, but usually would not use it uh, earlier than other available options due to the modest efficacy and associated toxicities. There are some subset-specific treatments to always consider, including the immune checkpoint inhibitor pembrolizumab and a relapse refractory primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, as well as selective activity of ibrutinib or lenalidomide in patients with non-GCB DLBCL. Frontline therapy is also poised for a big shift. We await FDA approval of polituzumab vedotin in combination with RCHP, based on the superior progression-free survival in the POLARICS trial. Of polar RCHP after RCHOP in patients with DLBCL and an IPi score of two or greater. By specific anti CD twenty monoclonal antibodies, not yet FDA approved, but looking very exciting, both in relapsed refractory indolent lymphomas as well as relapsed refractory diffuse large B cell lymphomas, where they are likely to join our treatment armamentarium as an off the shelf immunotherapy option for our patients. And certainly with any new class of drugs and new uh, uh, drugs and different lines of therapy, we always have to consider the toxicity profiles associated with these novel agents, be they antibody drug conjugates, naked uh, monoclonal antibodies, bispecific antibodies, or CAR T-cells. Uh, but uh, by understanding the toxicity profile, we can be prepared to manage uh, these toxicities with supportive care with toxicity-specific regimens to reverse those associated toxicities and dose modifications as needed, and thus provide the optimal efficacy and safety of care to all of our patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. With that, I want to thank you very much for your attention.